we're going to turn in the Word this morning to Matthew chapter 27. into the word here um, after the rest of the Lord Jesus and um, after his first trial he had to endure two trials first at the hands of his own people the second trial at the hands of Pilate and the Romans so it's after his first trial and uh, we begin to read here from verse 1 Matthew 27 and verse 1 When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And he said, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord appointed me. Maybe we'll just bow in a wee word of prayer again and seek the Lord's help. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for um, our brother Bertie, and we pray that you'll bless him, uh, bless Pat and the family at this time. Um, We thank you, Lord, for his faithful ministry, Lord, here over many, many years. And we, Lord, we pray that you will bless him for many, many years to come. And, Father, we now invite you to come into our very presence and speak to us from your word today. Uh, There's no one here any better than anyone else, Lord, and uh, we acknowledge that. And we pray that you will speak to us wherever we are with you this morning. Speak to us, Lord, we pray. And help me, Lord, to be faithful to your word and to deliver this message uh, to these dear folk this morning. Continue to bless our fellowship, Lord, here, and remember the meeting tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In chapter 17 and the verse 22, Jesus said this, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. 
But it wasn't just men, it was sinful men. In fact, it was religious sinful men. And when the Lord was arrested, uh, that took place in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said in chapter 26, in the verse 45, that the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Of course, the one who betrayed him into the hands of these religious sinners was Judas Iscariot. You know, the world today is cursed by religious sinners. Satan is behind a great confusion today. If you were up the street and you were giving out tracts and someone would read that tract and maybe a seed was sown and an interest in the things of God develops and a concern for their soul arises simply from reading the tract, well, they might want to uh, visit a place of worship to investigate further the truths that are presented in the tract. But for the average person today, they won't have a clue where to go because every religious building is the same to them. A friend of mine from the Roman Catholic community got saved and he thought that, well, all Protestant churches preach the gospel and he soon found out how wrong that was. If people are searching for the truth and they go into a lot of Protestant churches today, they're going to get a false gospel. If they go into a Catholic church today, they get a false gospel. If they go into a Mormon temple, they get a false gospel. If they go into the Kingdom Hall of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they will get a false gospel. Because Satan has planted his tares everywhere. And as a result of that, there is a great confusion. There's an advert on television at the moment, you might have seen it. It's to do with insurance. It advertises the online insurance company, uh, Confused.com. Um, you've got this guy sitting in the car and he's saying things like, there's so much confusion, there's experts with no expertise, fake news, so much choice, woe betide, you picked the wrong path, the wrong deal, it's not real. He might have seen it. He could actually be talking about religion today. And if that's true about the types of insurance out there, then it's certainly true about the types of religions out there today and Satan is behind them all. You see, he wants to keep people confused so that he can keep them on the broad way. Religion will always bring you further away from God. That's the tactic of Satan. In fact, religion in, in the Lord's day despised the Christ of, of God. They couldn't, couldn't stand him. He was a threat to them. They hated him, and they just couldn't wait to get rid of him. Christ represented truth, but they weren't interested in truth. Christ provided clarity in the midst of confusion. He still does, but people would rather be confused. The Lord has been taken here to the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, after his arrest, and this is now the morning after. The Roman soldiers, they haven't fulfilled Isaiah 53 yet, but the Lord is already badly injured at the hands of his own people. Chapter 26 in the verse 67 says that he'd been punched and slapped and spat upon. If you're visiting Jerusalem, uh, the guide might show you the basement under the church of St. Peter, which is possibly the prison house or prison under the house of Caiaphas, where they might have held the Lord between the time that he was charged with blasphemy and the time they led him away to Pontius Pilate. And then we see Judas in verse 3 turns up on the scene. Whatever his motives were in handing Jesus over to these people, Judas did not foresee what was about to take place. Judas did not anticipate the Lord being condemned to death. And now Judas is feeling guilty. Guilt is a very strong emotion. 
Guilt will keep you awake at night. Guilt will command your thoughts throughout the day. You can't run from it. You can't hide it. You can't escape from it. You can't ignore it. And guilt must be dealt with. And every one of us have felt guilty at one point or another in our lives. Maybe some of us right now this morning are feeling guilty about something that we've said or done during the week. What is guilt for? And what do we do about it? Well, guilt is like the oil light on a dashboard. When it comes on, we need to see to the problem right away. Otherwise, the problem will just get get an awful lot worse. When we get a toothache, we go to the dentist. When we twist an ankle, we'll maybe go to A&E. When we feel unwell, we'll go to the GP. So when we feel guilty, we must go to the Lord. God has installed this guilt mechanism in every human being as a sort of hazard warning system. It alerts us of our need to go to him. Some people don't know what to do with a guilty conscience, so they attempt to bear it out. They, they attempt, attempt to endure it, and it just ends up crushing. Others just don't know what to do, so they try to balance out the good with the bad, or the bad with the good. Others will go through life thinking, well, they've made their bed, they're going to have to lie in it. They have to live with the consequences and maybe suffer for their mistakes. And yet others still will numb themselves to their guilt. They'll blame others for their actions, but none of those methods are the way to deal with our guilt. And through the catastrophic errors of the people in this chapter, we see that the only way to properly deal with sin and deal with guilt is to take it to the Lord. First of all, we see here the man who saw no hope of forgiveness. Judas here was uh, gripped with guilt. Judas had spent three years with Jesus, only at the very, very end to betray him into the hands of his enemies. He knew what Jesus was like. He had spoke with him at length. He had shared meals with him. He had went on long journeys with him. So the thought of this most loving, most compassionate, most caring, most encouraging, most honest, most kind, most thoughtful person on the planet being crucified is too much now for Judas to bear. He thought he could handle the consequences of his actions, but now reality kicks in. And with blood in his hands and money in his pocket, he is gripped with guilt and he tries to deal with it. But his big mistake was he dealt with it in his way. Now at first, at first it looks like he really is trying to make amends. It looks like he's trying to put things right, to put right a great wrong. It looks like he's genuinely sorry, and it looks like he's dealing with it pretty well. It looks like he's showing remorse. Verse 3 says he repented. So it looks like Judas is remorseful. It says he brought again the 30 pieces of silver, so he was giving back the money that had been given to him to betray the Lord, and he actually admits his guilt. He says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Well, of course, he was right. Christ was innocent. Isaiah 53. He had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Peter's first letter. He was a lamb without blemish, without spot. John's first letter. In him is no sin. And the writer of Hebrews. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He was innocent blood. On the outside, Judas seems to be doing everything right. But we need to take a very closer 
look to what Matthew is actually saying here. You see, Judas is not feeling guilty about offending the holiness of God. He's doing this to make himself feel better. The Greek word for repented here in verse 3 is metamolomai. It means to regret. But the word for repentance unto salvation is metanoia. That's a completely different Greek word. Now, I spent two years studying Greek. It went in one ear, out through the other. But even I know those are two completely different words. Repentance is turning from sin and turning to God for the forgiveness of that sin. But Judas is not turning to God here at all. Do you notice that? He is trying to declare himself guiltless without God. God is never mentioned. I wonder if there's someone here this morning and you're trying to get yourself off the hook. You're trying to get yourself in the clear without God. And friend, it won't work. Judas didn't understand that his sin was an offense against the majesty and the holiness of God. And only he could could forgive his sin, only he could cleanse his sin, and only he could clear his guilty conscience. You see, Judas deals with guilt the wrong way. In fact, Judas goes to the wrong person. He goes to the chief priests and the elders. And people still go to the wrong people today. There's over a billion people on this planet this morning, and they're still going to the priest. Still going to the priest when the man sitting opposite them in that confession box is just as sinful, just as guilty, just as wicked, and just as deserving of hell as they are, and maybe even more so. Today, Rome stands in the way of truth. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But Rome blocks the individual Roman Catholic to the truth. Paul said, there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. But Rome pushes Christ to the side, and she declares herself as mediator between God and men. The Catholic can't learn directly from Christ's words. They must believe the interpretation of the church. But Jesus said, come on to me, and not come on to the church. Rome allows no one to come directly to Christ. And she has set herself up with all her false gospel of sacramental works, which says are, she says are essential for the individual's salvation. On this point, Rome will not budge. She will not compromise. Otherwise, she will lose her hold on her people, and her people could then do without her. It was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, The Roman Catholic Church is a counterfeit of the worst and most diabolical kind, a form of antichrist to be rejected and denounced. But, you know, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he didn't point out the fatal errors of Rome just to have a go at Roman Catholics. No, he exposed their false doctrine because he loved Roman Catholics. And he wanted to see them reject the false gospel of Rome. He wanted to see them saved, and he wanted to see Roman Catholics in heaven. Why didn't Judas just go to Jesus here? He had heard Jesus forgive sins before. He had seen the lives of sinners being totally transformed before his eyes. Why didn't he just get on his knees and cry out to God in repentance, just like the publican who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? Jesus had told that story to the disciples. Judas had been there when he told it, and Jesus told him that the publican went home justified. 
So why had Judas forgotten so soon? It seems that in spite of all the months that Judas had spent with the Lord, he was only interested in buying back his own innocence and standing up for Christ's innocence. He's not trying here to free the Lord at all. He doesn't go to the chief priests and demand the Lord's immediate release. He doesn't say, listen, we've got this wrong. This man is innocent. This is a terrible mistake. We need to put the brakes on here. He doesn't say any of that. There had been plenty of false witnesses that had turned up to the kangaroo court to testify against Jesus, and they had contradicted each other, as liars always do. But here was a golden opportunity for Judas to testify in God's defense, and he didn't. Judas is trying to get himself off the hook, trying to free himself, cleanse himself, but it doesn't work because we can't free ourselves. It never has worked, it never will work, and it is not the way to deal with sin. You ever wonder why people don't understand the simplicity of the gospel, no matter how much time we devote to them? Well, here was a man who had been with Jesus night and day, for three years, and he still didn't get it. So you see, it's not what we are doing wrong. It's not how we are witnessing. The problem is the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not. Judas then throws the money into the temple. Guilt plagues you so much that the thing that you desired the most, lusted after the most, and really wanted and loved is the thing that you end up despising. Do you ever notice that? That's how sin works. And to try and get rid of the guilt, people try and undo it themselves. Judas was the treasurer. The one who held the money bag and slipped the odd coin or two past the bag and into his pocket. He was a thief. The one who loved his worthless earthly treasure and dreamt of what he could do with it. But now he can't stand the sight of it and bear even the feel of it. Maybe every time he walked, it jangled in his pocket. Maybe it beat out that rhythm. Judas, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. He once loved the thought of having it, and now that he has it, he hates it. The married man who lusts after the other woman and loves the thought of having her, and when he does get her, his marriage falls apart. He loses his wife. He loses his home. He loses his children And he ends up hating the very thing that he desired to have. But the religious leaders, they wouldn't take the money. And Judas just throws it at them. By this stage, Judas had walked through the court of the Gentiles, through the court of the women, past the brazen altar, up to the circular steps above which was the court of the priests. And then beyond that was the holy place where the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and the altar of incense was kept. He gets to those steps and he just launches those 30 pieces of silver to the ground. And of course, they would have went everywhere. And we've all dropped coins and you'll know that they clang off stuff and they roll under stuff. They went everywhere. Maybe one or two even rolled through the holy place right up to that veil of the temple which separated the holy place from the holy of holies. You know that thick curtain within a few hours would have been split from the top to the bottom? And what money couldn't do to that curtain, the death of Christ was about to do, so that the way would be open for all people for all time to come to God. 
Judas was trying to force the priests to face up to their own sin and guilt, but nothing worked. And of course it didn't work, because nothing except turning to Christ will ever work. Nothing except turning to Christ relieves us of our guilt and cleanses us of our sin. And then we see that Judas's unresolved guilt led him to the depths of despair. And in verse 5, we're told he hanged himself. He committed suicide. His way led to his death. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. In Acts 1, 18 and 19, it says that he fell, that his body burst open and his intestines spilled out. But that's okay. There's no contradiction here between what Matthew is telling us and what Luke tells us in the book of Acts because Judas would have fallen. That would have happened after he hanged himself. Perhaps he hung there undiscovered until his body began to bloat in that 40-degree heat. And eventually the rope snapped and he fell and his bloated body would have just burst open. It was a very, very sad end for someone who had been so close to the kingdom. Saddest death of all has to be of that person that has heard the gospel all their lives and have come so close to the kingdom, so close to salvation, and still they step out into a Christless eternity. Judas felt his guilt so deeply, he punished himself by committing suicide. I don't know, I don't even know if I'm allowed But in spite of everything he did, I can't help feeling sorry for Judas. In his misery, maybe he thought his death would bring him some form of relief. But he soon found out he was wrong. As an unbeliever, one second after he died, he found out that his death did not bring any relief. Now, I realize we have to be careful when we're dealing with this subject because It has become such an epidemic in our generation, but it has to be said. Suicide is a sin. It violates the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. It is the worst possible course of action for anyone to take, no matter what the circumstances are. But nowhere in Scripture does it say it is an unforgivable sin that bars a believer from heaven. For the Christian... Suicide doesn't end the pain and misery. It just transfers that pain and misery onto those that you leave behind, and it makes that pain and misery permanent. For the unbeliever, suicide does not end the pain and misery, but rather it multiplies it many, many, many times over forever. So if you're struggling this morning with guilt or any other issues in your life, friend, take it to the Lord. Or speak to a believer that you can trust, a real Christian who remembers what they have been saved from. We're supposed to be a family, and family members do not gossip about each other. And what is said in the family should be staying in the family. Paul said, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When we are physically injured, the rest of the body helps out to compensate for the weakness of the injured part. 
If I was to hurt my left foot, then I would take the weight of my body on my right foot. And Jesus intended that the body of Christ would work in the same way. We will never be more like Jesus when we are actively seeking to restore a fallen saint. Believer, if you want to know how to treat a brother or sister who has recently dropped the ball, just take a fresh look at how Jesus dealt with it. The woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the sinner who anointed his feet, and that little rascal Zacchaeus. And now ask yourself, are you really better than Jesus that you can't forgive and you can't help to restore? So uh, there is the right way then to deal with guilt. For sinners, there is forgiveness. No matter what you have done, no matter what guilt is on your shoulders, no one has ever out the mercy of God. Paul said, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. His grace is more than enough in our, in our time of need. No matter what we have done, no matter what we have become, there is always, always, always hope in Christ. So don't do what Judas did. He didn't think it through. He, he forgot everything he had been taught by the greatest ever preacher. He acted too quickly and ruled out the only person that could put a great wrong right. Do you remember when Peter denied the Lord? He wept because of his betrayal and guilt. But crucially, Peter remembered the remedy for his sin. He remembered the love and the mercy of Christ. Like Judas, he had seen how Jesus dealt with sinners every single day of his ministry. And Peter found relief and restoration and rest in the Lord. And instead of taking his life, he gave his life to Christ. And many, many more sinners were added to the kingdom of God. So can I ask you, friend, this morning, how are you dealing with your guilt? Because the way that you deal with your guilt has eternal consequences. Are you covering it up? Are you dealing with it in the wrong way? Your way? Are you buying presents? Are you sharing it with attention? Are you throwing money at it? Like Judas? Or are you taking it to the Lord? There are many wrong ways to deal with guilt, and people do it through drink and drugs and good works, but there remains only way, one way, and we must take it to God. The Bible says our sin is an offense against God, therefore we must confess and repent to God. There is no sin that God cannot eradicate. There is no guilt that God cannot eliminate. Does the Bible say we are cleansed from some unrighteousness? No, it says all unrighteousness. And there is no point any one of us looking down our noses at anyone else this morning because the Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. Hebrews says their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So are we willing to take, it, take him at his word this morning and live in the light of his freedom and forgiveness? Judas saw no hope of forgiveness, no way out of his mess, but now we see the man who actually saw no need for forgiveness at all. This is what we see here in the chief priests and the elders. And as the Lord is led away in handcuffs like some common criminal and Judas throws the money to the floor of the temple, they have to do something now with this money. The religious leaders actually sidestep their guilt. Judas blurts out some sort of admission. He says, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. But the chief priests and elders, their attitude was, well, so what? What has that got to do with us? That's your problem, Judas, not ours. 
They weren't the type of pastors that you wanted to take your problems to. They were the complete opposite to what Christ was like. They couldn't care less. I wonder, is that the type of Christian you are this morning? You know that people are struggling, but you just couldn't care less. You don't care. Things are going all right for you. Your children are saved, so you never pray for the children of other parents. You never come to the prayer meeting to pray for them. You need to be careful. Because their children could one day grow up to be ministers and missionaries. And your children could end up in the far country in the dirt. You know, we're so unlike a family at times. Do you know how difficult and disheartening and discouraging it is for a preacher to spend all day in the study and then to preach on a Sunday night to empty wooden seats when it just it would be just so easy just to come out and sit and be an encouragement? How cold, how unloving, how indifferent can you be to someone else's anxiety and pain here? It was horrible. But it was more than displaying an uncaring heart. This was blame shifting. And this is how some folk deal with their their guilt. They blame someone else. They transfer their guilt to others. I said this, but they said that. I only did that because they did far worse on me. Friend, if that's your attitude when you come to God, then you will never be forgiven. You will never be saved because repentance is simply admitting that God was always right and you were always wrong. However, the religious leaders accidentally admit their guilt here. Matthew shows us that these guilt shifters actually know what they have done wrong because accidentally they admit their guilt. In verse 6, they they take the money and they say, well, it is not lawful to put this money back into the treasury because it is blood money. And with these words, they're admitting responsibility for what was happening to the Lord. This money had been used illegally to get somebody killed. So by their rules, now it can't be used. They ask themselves, well, what can we do with these 30 pieces of silver? They have to decide now what to do with 30 pieces of silver. I mean, hello. If they knew the scriptures the way that they boasted of knowing the scriptures, then alarm bells should have been ringing at this stage. They should have been asking themselves, well, what should we be doing about our guilt? We have condemned an innocent man to die, the same man that we've been expecting for hundreds of years, our Messiah, the perfectly pure Son of God. But self-righteous people don't ask themselves those types of questions because they honestly believe that they've never done anything wrong. Everyone else is guilty. Everyone else needs to get their house in order, but I'm okay. And sadly, so many have learned to silence their conscience and deal with their guilt in that way. The religious leaders deal with guilt the wrong way. Just like Judas, they they deal with guilt the wrong way. The money can't go into the treasury, even though it came out of the treasury. How bizarre, how weird is that? They were happy enough to take God's money out of the treasury to kill God's son, but they decide now it would be wrong to put it back into the treasury. What hypocrisy, what corruption, how blinded can you really be? And then they cover it up. By doing something good, they purchased the potter's field so they could have somewhere to bury foreigners in. And believe it or not, that is what a lot of guilty people do. 
they commit a great wrong against someone, maybe a husband, maybe a wife, and then they try to compensate by doing good to that person without that person actually knowing what the motivation is behind it. And I used to see it in the army all the time. We used to go to camp to England in the summer for a couple of weeks, and the married, some of the married men would forget that they were married. And then in their warped thinking, everything would be made better if they brought the wife back a nice present. Like Judas, they were trying to make up for their mistakes. They tried to make themselves feel better. Are you trying to cover up for your guilt today by doing something good? That's what the chief priests and elders were doing. But you see, God knew they would do it. God had already written the script. These fools were trying to outsmart God, but all along God was playing them like puppets on a string. Jeremiah had prophesied about it. 500 years before, Zechariah wrote this, They weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver, and I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. God called Jeremiah to speak out against Israel because of their cold, dead, unfeeling hearts. The people were actually sacrificing their own children to false gods in a field of clay hundreds of years earlier. The same field that these priests purchased. God had told them, he told the people through Jeremiah and Zechariah, you are not my people because my people would not sacrifice children. But by purchasing this field, they continued the same sin as their forefathers, except this time they weren't sacrificing their own sons, but God's only son, sent to redeem them. But they rejected him and they rejected God. You see, God's people will hear his voice. They will open their hearts. They will respond to his call. They will admit their guilt. And they will welcome him in. If they had known their Bibles, they would have looked for another way to spend those 30 pieces of silver. If they had built an orphanage or bought a nursing home for the elderly, then Christ could not have been God. But by their own actions, they proved beyond any doubt that which they wanted so desperately to disprove. You see, we can't outsmart God. And we never will. Do we find ourselves happily overlooking sin or blame shifting this morning? Shifting the blame between your marriage, amongst your neighbors, between your families? Politicians are very good at blame shifting. They make a career out of it. It's always someone else's fault, and we see it every day now in the news at the dispatch box in the House of Commons between Corbyn and May. Maybe you're downplaying your sin this morning, and you look at others and you think, well, your sin's not such a big deal after all. It's just a small sin, a little white lie. Well, what is that, really? Well, it's a lie. A sin is a sin, and one sin is enough to damn your soul in hell forever. What does this book here, God's Word, say about people who overlook their sin or downplay their sin or attempt to shift the blame on others? It says, you're a sinner and you come short of the glory of God. Again, the right way to deal with our guilt is to realize there is no one righteous. We need to own up to our sin, admit it, bring it before God and into the light of his redeeming grace where there is full and free forgiveness in none other but Jesus Christ. That is the only way to deal 
with guilt. And you say to me this morning, "What well, you don't know my sin, and that's true, but friend, you don't know my sin. It's been 25 years since I was saved, and you know, there are still days when those sins I commit still pop into my mind, still send a shiver down my spine, still makes me cringe with shame. And you know, if I was to let it, it still has the potential to crush me and tear me apart. And what do I do? How do I cope? I remember the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses me of all sin. And that's why we Christians should be the happiest people alive. And if if we are not, there's something wrong with our walk with God. Yes, we know our sin, but we also know the Savior from all sin. And he has forgiven us, and he has saved us, and he has set us free. Oh, we know we're not perfect. Of course we know that. But this morning, we look to the one who intercedes for us every minute of every day, who is altogether perfect. So, friend, I wonder, are you like Judas? Are you crushed with guilt, trying to deal with it yourself? Friend, it will not work. It won't work. It'll end in disaster. You need a ticket to the Lord. Are you like the chief priests and elders, indifferent to guilt and see no need for forgiveness? The fact is you'll see your need for forgiveness one day, but that one day will be too late. Today, there is a full and free pardon from your sin. Eternal life is an offer to you as a free gift, and all you have to do this morning is receive it. How gracious, how kind, how merciful, how compassionate and loving is he. But remember this. At the start of this, verse 5, Judas was still living in the day of grace. By the time we get to the end of verse 5, the door of grace was shut for him forever. Just like that. In the space of one little verse. The application? Tonight. The door of grace could be shut for you.